Well, good morning again, beautiful family. Thanks for saying good morning again. I like that. I need that as a warm-up. If you're visiting, my name is Peter. I serve as the lead pastor. Welcome to the Springs. Uh, Before we get into our sermon, I want to point out a small note of joy. As you know, it is Black History Month. And all of us, all of us need to stand before God with informed gratitude about his faithfulness, his faithfulness in in history's past. But listen, don't take today for granted because Jesus is making history as he sees and produces a beautifully diverse people receiving communion together in Jesus' beautiful church. Now, growing up for me, I didn't know any black people, any black people. And I wouldn't have had a single black friend if it weren't for first coming into relationship with Jesus. He's the one who drew me out of myself, out of my perversions, and placed me into a greater people. Listen, only by the body and blood of Jesus can the dream fully be realized. Only by the body and blood of Jesus can Jew and Gentile black and white, male and female, really see true community. Amen? So praise be to God. Glory be to Jesus for holy communion. Amen? Now we're going to keep moving forward in God's word, watching God make history as we dare to seek his word together. Today, uh, we are in Jonah chapter 1, our message 2 of our series, Overboard with a a message entitled, Arise, Go. I'm going to ask you to take that literally for a moment. If you would arise to your feet. Now, don't go anywhere yet. We'll get to the go part of the application at the end of our sermon. But we stand to honor God's word, for it stands redemptive over all history as supreme. Above us. It stands above us. We're in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid a fare and went and down and got into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Thank you. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Lord Jesus, this is so easy to read your word and compartmentalize it, to separate it as some something from another world almost, something from another planet, another time. And Jesus, our tendency to do that with your word is not because your word doesn't relate to us very much. More often than not, it's because it relates so much to us that it hits sometimes too close to home for our comforts. Because Jesus, we, like Jonah, when you expose that thing in us, that that thing that crosses our will, we often flee from your presence, turn from your holy face. And so we're asking for your help today to to confront your word, even as your word confronts us. Uh, 
and empower us, Jesus, to arise and go with you where you're going. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. So here you have the holy and renowned prophet Jonah sitting in his place of privilege in one moment doing just fine and in the next moment after hearing God speak a few words he is in a scurry of activity leaving behind everything he knows probably paying what could have been a life savings to get a a ship fare and go on this radical mission of disobedience. Now, people around him could have thought just from the activity, man, he is obeying the word of God, right? They could have seen him and said, man, he just heard from God, and now he's being radical to to go and obey him. I love what Sinclair Ferguson says in his book, Man Overboard. It's a commentary on Jonah. We're going to point out some of the things he says today. He says, activity is a poor substitute for obedience. How many of that is like us? We're so busy and doing so many different things and tweeting about it. But don't, subs, don't, don't, don't get activity confused with obedience. This is just what Jonah was doing. Ironically, all of his activity and sacrifice and boldness was directly against the face of God. I want to show you a map. God told him to go to Nineveh, about 500 miles to the northeast. Nineveh is in... Uh, at the time was in the empire of Assyria. More about the history of the Assyrians. It's in modern day Mosul. It's modern day Iraq, which is actually currently inhabited by, controlled by the group who calls themselves the Islamic State. He was told to go that way. Instead, he goes, he, he, he boards a ship to go five times the distance in the opposite direction. Now, Tarshish was uh, known in, in the ancient Near East as probably most likely Tartessus of Spain. And in the ancient Near East, all the way up until the time of, of the founding of Islam 2,000 years later, Spain was known to the ancient Near East people as essentially the end of the world. So God says, go there, it's a long way. He says, I will go to the end of the world to not do what you're saying. What is going on here? Now, I want to tackle this wild scene with our time this morning by asking and answering three basic questions about God's strange call to arise and go. I want to ask three questions. Why, what, how? Why was this such an unusual command of God? Number two, what made Jonah rebel, essentially? Profoundly, what was the biggest reason? And finally, how does Jonah's story inform our story? So number one, why was this an unusual command? When God says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Now, in your own time, I encourage you to study the book of Jonah and look around it. The, the several prophets before, the several prophets after None of the other prophets talk about anything like Jonah is talking about. Most often it's either words or a series of words and prophecies to either Israel or Judah, God's chosen people. But here we have, 
a book in the middle of all this about a man called to a particular city and not just any particular city, a particular city of outsiders. In fact, people very, very specifically contrary to God's people. John Calvin, the 16th century church reformer, he in his commentary on Jonah says, it was at first a new and unusual thing for prophets to be drawn away from the chosen people and sent to heathen nations. Hence, novelty, the newness of this command. Novelty, doubtless, must have violently shaken the courage of the holy prophet. In so many ways, I desire for God to violently shake us with encouragement and power for what he desires in us. Jonah, interestingly, what we'll find out from what what else we know from the Bible was probably grew up in a lower Galilean region. Uh, In fact, he probably could have grown up in the city of Nazareth, where Jesus grew up about a thousand years later. In fact, it's very possible that Jonah's great-granddaughter could have somehow gotten, you know, her matzah recipe to Jesus' grandma. It's just a thought that I had. It's, it's It's very possible Same area where Jesus grew up, probably similar high school football teams. Same area. Jonah means dove. His name, his destiny, what God put on him, the calling on his life was dove. He was to be a messenger of peace by name. In fact, if you consider Genesis 8, Jonah was destined to be much like the the dove of, of Noah, sent out to find ground that might be dry and fertile for the kingdom of God. That was the destiny, the calling on his life simply by his name. And yet, did he live out his calling? Well, let's go back before, before Jonah 1. Let's go to 2 Kings. It mentions Jonah elsewhere. 2 Kings 14. We'll, uh, we'll see a dark moment in history here. We see here Jeroboam, the second evil Jeroboam in Israelite history. All the, the, the kings, the holy kings have passed away. Elisha, Elijah, both dead. It's a dark moment. Very little is happening that pleases the Lord. In fact, it says in verse 24, speaking of the king of Israel where uh, Jonah was a prophet, serving as a prophet. It says, Jeroboam too did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who came before him generations before. In fact, verse 25, it says, However, nonetheless, Jeroboam restored the border of Israel. He restored the border of Israel from Lebohamath as far as the Sea of Arabath. According to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet. You know, it's interesting, in a dark moment where very little was happening, here's Jonah, his word. He's he's a messenger of peace, in essence, to a dark king, an evil king who had turned away from God, 
And in the history, these borders that needed to be restored were actually borders that through ruthless activity of the Assyrians, the, the, the people of Nineveh, these people had taken land through a, a brutal onslaught against God's people. The generation before, Jeroboam's dad, King Jeroboam's dad had this land taken from him. And despite being an evil man, God was showing mercy to Jeroboam, allowing him to restore some of this land to him. Almost like, man, maybe the glory days are coming back. And all of this was spoken, prophesied, predicted by Jonah. So it would seem here that he is this messenger of peace, showing this word, this encouraging word in in a moment where there needed to be so much encouragement for God's people. He was Jonah, the dove, bringing peace, or so it seems. Until you get to Jonah 1. And there's this opportunity by God's word to prove the hero he was not. Jonah thought himself a bright spot in dark history compared to the culture around him. But when pressed by the word of God to go out, no longer was he this upstanding man of repute. He was disobedient to his very calling. When God says this unusual word that just wasn't quite spoken in the nation at the time, this arise and go word. You see, at the time, Israel was not an arise and go people. They were more like a a stay and protect type of people. They had been so battered down and threatened they had seen all the, the, all the evil happen around them, the nations closing in on them. They were not a rise and go type of people. This was more of a, a, a stay and protect and hide from God and from our enemies moment in Israelite history. It was unusual for God to say, go. It was so much the culture of protect and hold on to the glory days of the past. So much like you see in, in America today, right? Now let's just protect what we have and try to go back to where th- the way things used to be. Well, we have something to protect, but there's so much more that God wants for us in our arising and our going today. So listen, when Jonah had a chance to, to prove what was really inside him, It grieved God. He says, arise, go. And Jonah, in a moment where he could have been showing that his name is indicative of of who he is and his calling, he really just shows in a moment he's more or less typical of the dark people in the culture around him. Rather than living a life that's representative of the calling and the destiny of God on his life. Now, isn't that like us? Let's stop and judge ourselves for a minute. This is really good to do in church or out of church or whenever. Isn't that so much like us? We all too often deceive ourselves by judging ourselves with the wickedness around us. We compare ourselves to the wickedness around us rather than seeing ourselves in light of God's holiness and his calling on our lives. That's just a lot more uncomfortable. But here you have two words, arise, go, And all of a sudden, Jonah goes from being a pretty good guy to being an enemy of God's calling on his own life. He had the privilege 
of God on his life, and then all of a sudden he is totally rejecting that privilege. Ferguson says, no past privilege, nor all past privileges together, no past obedience, nor fruitfulness in service can ever substitute for present obedience to the word of God. The word of God was spoken, go away from, from, from what you're used to now. And this word was so unusual, so unusual and Jonah has a chance to prove really what's inside him. He rebels against God's word. This really shows the indicativeness of the culture around him. And then he goes in the opposite direction. And it leads to number two, why? Why when God says go one place, why was he so passionate to go the other way? Now we've already established that maybe the comfort, the culture around him, made him a little bit reluctant to obey God. But why was he so passionate about disobeying God? I believe there's something further, something deeper. And I would call that hatred. You see, it wasn't just comfort. And it wasn't just culture. He had an explicit hatred for Nineveh, for Assyria. A little background on Assyria. Nineveh and Assyria are first mentioned in Genesis 10. Uh, It says that the grandson of Noah, Nimrod, uh, strange name I know, son of Cush, Nimrod goes away and after the flood, he establishes uh, the city of Nineveh and and the the land of Assyria. And it's mentioned again, this land is mentioned again a few generations later. The sons of Ishmael settled there, it says in in Genesis 25. And it says that they, quote, settled against Nineveh. The, the kindred of the land settled against the people of the land. In essence, violence, uh, contention was always the history of this land and of these people. And we fast forward about a, a thousand years later, the, the, the people of Israel, as I said, were, were brutalized by the Assyrians. The chapter before we mentioned uh, Jonah in Second Kings. Uh, I mentioned that the, their land had been taken away and it had been temporarily restored. And then you see after Pool, the son of Assyria, comes on an onslaught again against Israel. We see a few generations afterwards, Assyria literally comes in and wipes out Israel completely through a series of awful, brutalizing, really culture-annihilating onslaughts. Honestly, the best way of describing the type of people that the Assyrians and the Ninevites were would be to look at how ISIS is brutalizing people today. Some of the same land and area as is described here in biblical times, probably some of the same similar uh, descendants. And yet it says in Jonah 1, this great city. Despite their wickedness, it was in God's mind, someone, a a people, brutal, evil it says, but someone that, people that God really wanted to redeem and have mercy on. Think about that. I mean, when it, when we compare it to what we're seeing today, I can imagine the disposition of Jonah, the disbelief of Jonah that God would have mercy on them. Jonah hated them and he rejected God's mission. Besides, he would have been called a traitor, 
If he were to go to these people, he would have been called a traitor prophet, maybe even stoned to death for going. I mean, think if, if someone were, were said, if God told you to arise, go to Syria and preach my mercy to ISIS. I mean, you would probably be apprehended and put in jail. It's treason in America today. At the time, it was no more popular with Jonah. He hated them. So I would say again, comfort, all of these things, his own comfort, his own culture, made him to be against God's love and mercy on these people. But one could ask, what about, what about fuzziness? We've already described that. In the culture of the day, you just didn't do this sort of thing. But was, was Jonah fuzzy about what God really wanted from these people? In the midst of all, this was a new command. Was he just not quite certain what God was wanting? Now, I've already established that God's command was a new thing. But don't be mistaken. Novelty and clarity can coexist. In other words, even though God's command to arise and go was new, it was super clear to Jonah. Ferguson says, there are times when spiritual problems and difficulties arise because of a failure to understand God's word. And it has been said that often our problem in obeying God's word, however, is not that we do not understand what he's saying, but because we do. Listen, with Jonah, what God was calling him to do, with the culture around him, the unpopularity, his hatred for the people, one of the problems is he knew very clearly what God wanted. Great and common is the pain of not knowing God's will. But greater and perhaps more common is the pain of knowing God's will and knowing often that his will is precisely contrary to yours. Mark Twain says it best of all. He says, it ain't the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. I came to know Jesus as a teenager. And I was just a pretty normal guy. I considered myself a good guy. Probably like how Jonah considered himself. In light of the people around me, especially the guys on the baseball team. I was a pretty decent guy. I was cool. And nice. And yet when Jesus drew near to me, I saw myself really for who I was for the first time. And he made me alive in him. And all of a sudden, the things that I used to think were cute weren't so cute anymore. They were ugly. And I I saw new things that I had never seen before. New commands of God. Things that were totally novel to me. Really? I got to wait till marriage? Anybody? That's what it says. Still says that. Really, a tenth of my income I'm supposed to give to the church? Like, these things were totally new to me. But listen, they weren't unclear. It was super clear to me what God was calling me to do with my life in so many ways. And it was painfully clear to me. Jonah didn't just, you know, maybe he didn't quite understand God. He, the culture around him was not about this thing. The inside of him, deep, the deep hatred inside of him was directly against it. And God spoke clearly and Jonah knew what he was doing when he rebelled against God. He hated the Assyrians and he hated God's love for them. 
So number three, finally, how does Jonah's story play out in our story? How does it inform our story? Or I should say, how else? You know, Jonah fled from the word of God. In so many ways, we subtly do the same day after day. We flee from the word of God. Jonah got the message, and he went in the opposite direction. Is that ever you? If it's not, maybe it's just because you're not close enough to hearing God's word. I invite you, we have one of 25 growth groups that from South Austin to New Braunfels, where this is, this is about to be a great advertisement for our growth groups. You can join our, our relationships with people that will get so close to you that it'll reveal things in your will and your desires that you hate. Things about God that you hate. Crossing your will, making you uncomfortable. Those areas in your life where you just want to go the other direction. How am I doing on my promotion of our growth groups? But listen, as messy as it is to be confronted by God's will and his word, it's inevitable. Most people, when it gets a little too close to home, they kind of pass the buck down a few maybe generations ahead. I don't want to deal with things right now, so essentially I'm just going to curse my kids to have to deal with it later. I invite you to get close enough to God's people where his word is coming out in a movement of people on mission where it's not only contrary to the culture around you, it's contrary to something deep inside you that needs to come out. That's the mission of God, amen? I'm still preaching to me, too. That's why this is hard to say. See, only in the process of the great mission of disciple-making will we really see those things in us that are exposed like that. And listen, we're going to talk in a little bit about an opportunity to go to another place on mission of making disciples. But you know what? The mission is not as much about a destination. It's about discipline, how God loves you and wants to discipline you. And God really wants to minister through you on mission to people you're ministering to, but in the midst of your mission, his mission is still to minister to you. You get that? You're still a disciple that's being discipled as you're discipling. I'm still a work in progress. And sometimes I won't know what he's wanting to do in me until I arise and go. Not... We, we so often think it's, man, once you sit around and clean yourself up, then you'll be uh, qualified for the mission. No, no, no. He says, arise, go. And sometimes it's not until you're overboard where he starts to do things in you that are uncomfortable, redemptive, and historical. Here's the point. God's not just wanting to pick on you. You know, to pick scars. He's wanting to heal you. And unless you're with him in the midst of the process, so often you'll miss what he's trying to do. Unless you're confronted with your Nineveh, so often you'll just miss the historical thing he's trying to do in you. So so what is that? What is your Nineveh? What is your thing that when God says, go there, you want to go in the other direction? Is Is it sexuality? Is it, you know, what, money? your money or what you perceive to be your money? 
What is the thing where God speaks to you? Just say, ah, no. What if God loves you so much that he wants you to have some pain there? He wants you to be uncomfortable so that he can redeem you, heal you. What is that thing? I'm just going to leave you a few minutes. What if it's literally missions? Like you're supposed to go on missions here or there. Could be that. What is God's word saying to you? Find that thing, not that you like the most, but that you hate. And that's something that God's wanting to do in you. The thing that God loves, what is that thing that God loves? And that when he presses it in you, you hate it. He wants to do something in you. Now as I close, I want to point out an important subtlety in this text in Jonah 1. Super important. Verse 3. Anytime God's word mentions something twice, especially in one verse, it should cause us to think. It says here, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish and from the presence of the Lord. And it says at the end, again, it repeats away from the presence of the Lord. In the original Hebrew, when it says the presence of the Lord, it literally means the face of the Lord. You see, Jonah was facing down God and turning his face against the face of the Lord. And as I've said, we do so so often, so subtly, so often in our own lives. We turn away from the face of the Lord. And what are we supposed to do about that? Are you gonna, if, if I leave you here today with, you should try to stop doing that. And, and all we've got is, man, don't do that. Let's do better than Jonah. If that's all we got, then I'll tell you what. We've got a bunch of wasted human effort. I've got something better than that. I've got Luke chapter 10. And get ready for one of the most redemptive and amazing contrasts to Jonah turning his face against the face of God and Jesus. In in verse 51 of Luke chapter 9, actually. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. His face was set toward Jerusalem. You see, like Jonah, Jesus knew precisely his mission from God. But unlike Jonah, and unlike us, his face was not against the face of the Lord when he went on mission. He went on mission to live the life that we should have lived. He's the only person in history that ever earned life, eternal life, from the way he lived his life, from always obeying God when he said, rise and go. And yet this mission to Jerusalem was to go and nonetheless die the death that we should have died as a substitute. Nights later, he was in Jerusalem praying outside in a garden and even coming and confronting his own human flesh and saying, God, not my will, but yours be done. He was surrendering yet again his will to the will of the Father. So in contrast with Noah and us, when our will is contrary to God, our hope is not that we should try to help work a little better. Our hope is that Jesus, our substitute, his will, 
his face was for our redemption, and that's our hope today. Would you stand with me, please? If you've never turned your face to the Lord, to his redemption, we're going to pray in a minute, and I'm going to invite you. I dare you for the sake of your life and for the mission of God on your life to pray, to surrender your life. You, even as I'm talking right now, you can just say, God, you know where I am. I'm not, I am going to Tartessus en route against you, but Lord, turn me around. Turn my heart to you. Make me new. I receive the sacrifice you shed on the cross and I want your new life. If you're praying that right now, God hears you and he can restore you. My prayer, though, is that all of us, as we close, would dare to pray, Lord, your kingdom come and your will be done in my life. Even as he's specifically saying things like, arise and go. As we close, we're going to pray that prayer, but before that, I want, I want, to, I want to give you something specific to pray about. A team of ours, we're, we're going to Mexico. Uh, we're going to Baja in June. And we're going to be talking about this in our growth groups and getting sign-ups with our 25 groups. are going to be signing folks up and who wants to go to Mexico in June. But we've said a few weeks ago, don't pray necessarily just if you're supposed to go, but also pray if you're supposed to stay. Because God's word already says, arise, go. And later he says, go into all the nations. Make disciples. This year we're focused on Mexico, right? But more than that, we're focused on a people that, that are saying in their hearts now, whether we're going there or not, your kingdom come, your will be done. Surrendering again. So as you're praying about Mexico, and more so fundamentally as you're praying about what Jesus is doing in your life, would you consider the application of what we pray? Let's join hands and pray. The prayer that the Lord taught us. The words are up on the screen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. As we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Praise God. All right. Let's give him a hand. Yeah. Now, I invite you, if you're not connected to a growth group and God's speaking to you, maybe you just gave your life to the Lord. Maybe you're supposed to go to Mexico. We have sign-ups in the back today at the connections table, but probably more fundamentally, sign up for a growth group where we're, we're going to be talking more about that in the coming weeks. And one last an announcement. I'm not saying this to embarrass you, but I'm talking to our family here, right? The Springs. This is my family. I want people in here to raise your hand if you own real estate. Actually, I don't anymore. If you own real estate, a few hands. Now, if you're not raising your hand, I want you to raise your hand. Everyone raise your hand. Because if you're part of this church, you now own 
real estate. This building, I signed the, I signed the, uh, the papers this week. It finally went through. We have some celebratory cookies in the back. Grab a cookie and, and celebrate the fact that you're now an owner. We'll, we'll have some more information about what we're doing in the building as, as we go on. But we are dismissed.